1: And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. My name is Matt Kierkegaard, and this week we head to Vietnam to meet the Heart of Darkness craft brewery based in Saigon. I recently attended the Seabrew trade show and conference in Bangkok and was struck by the energy and enthusiasm and the sense of opportunity for craft beer at that conference. It reminded me very much of the craft brewing scene here a decade ago. It was also very interesting to hear the very different regulatory environments that operate across the region and the different approaches to the industry as a result. Beer is a drink, I think, that is at its best when it's a little idiosyncratic, and it reflects the time and place into which it was born. So I wanted to explore that a little bit from the things that I saw at Seabrew. Everyone I spoke to pointed to Heart of Darkness as one of the most significant brewers across the region, so I reached out to its founder and CEO, John Pemberton, and the Director of Business Development, Chris Roberts, to learn a little bit more about the craft brewing scene in the Southeast Asian region from their perspective, and also the background of the Heart of Darkness Brewery. Brews News coverage of Seabrew 2022 was proudly brought to you by HPA. As Australia's leading hop grower and regional representative of the Global Bath House Group, HPA supply a huge range of consistently high-quality local, international, and innovative hop products, so you can make consistently high-quality beers. Their team of experts in hop breeding, growing, harvesting, and processing are dedicated to helping brewers become more efficient and more profitable by delivering maximum impact in beer year after year. HPA are proud supporters of brewing education to build a sustainable future for the industry. And now, enjoy my chat with John Pemberton and Chris Roberts. John Pemberton, Chris Roberts, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Hi Matt, how you doing? Special Seabrew edition, I should say, having just been to... um, uh, Bangkok for the for the terrific uh, Seabrew conference and trade show uh, I, I didn't actually manage to catch up with you it's a it, it's it's the challenge of something like uh, Seabrew where you've got two days there's a very active program and a lot of socializing trying to steal an hour um, can, can be quite a challenge but fortunately we've got uh, you know zoom style uh, communication tools. so thank you for both joining me thank you for the invite yeah because we are speaking to a brewery that's probably not a household name in the Australian brewing industry, even though they're probably aware of the brewery, um, I'll get you both just to tell me a little bit about you and your backgrounds and how you came to be uh, working for a brewery in Southeast Asia. John, uh, what was the John Pemberton story?
2: The <laughs> John Pemberton story. Um, okay, so I, I moved to Taiwan when I was 21 and learned Mandarin. Um, and then decided that I want to go to China and um, and become sort of a cultural bridge and do business and get into sourcing and procurement and trading. Um, got waylaid in 98 by the Asian financial crisis. Ended up in the States um, where I discovered craft beer and fell head over heels in love with it. Um, as an Englishman moving to America, I was absolutely terrified. You know, the land of Bud, Bud Light, Cause, Cause Light, Michelob, Michelob Light. And I come from the land of fine ales it was a little bit terrifying um, and as I got there my my now ex-wife threw a party for me uh, and I met this guy became a very dear friend of mine John and I was crying into my Budweiser quite literally and he's like oh no no mate come on I'll take you around the corner so he took me around the corner to this massive beer bun Uh, And we just started picking up bottles off the shelf and we went back and sat in the corner and he took me on his craft beer journey, um, which is where I discovered, I guess that night it was Sierra Nevada that really sort of opened the door for me and changed the way I looked at beer. Um, I think I put on 16 kilos while I lived in America uh, after discovering craft beer. Um, So I was there for like eight years and then I got my dream came true and I got to go back to China. Um, And of course, there was no craft beer. So after about seven years of craft beer famine, um, a very dear friend of mine, Steve, popped up on my doorstep at like 11 o'clock at night. No phone call beforehand. And this is the age of cell phones, right? Bangs on the door. And he's super excited and he's got this bottle of beer in his hands and he's just made that uh, in his kitchen. And he'd been trying to get me to do this for ages, but I was a um, general manager for a big retail outfit out there. So I was always busy, always traveling and um so i tried it and he just blew my mind it was a, a red ipa uh, but it was as good as anything i'd ever had in the states quality wise so i was like all right look if you can make beer that good here's the deal i'll pay for the kit and you teach me how to do that but we get a kit that's big enough that we can do like 80 liter batches so we get two kegs each screw bottling i went straight to keg <laughs> um so that's what we did um steve became a little bit um Loose with his hopping techniques. Um, I became completely obsessed. So I replaced Steve with pumps. Sorry for listening, mate. Uh, replaced <laughs> Steve with pumps and um, and quit my job and then basically spent six months just teaching myself how to homebrew. Um, and it turned out I was pretty good at it. Uh, then IKEA came banging on the door, hunting me for a role heading up their operation, their sourcing operation in Vietnam, which is where I always wanted to go after China. So um, I relocated to Saigon brought my brew kit with me kicking and screaming everyone thought it was some sort of bomb making kit or something so customs didn't want to touch it ikea didn't want to touch it i had to throw a hissy fit and say well either i get my brew kit or i don't come (laughs) um so so got the kit through um and then um to my shagin my driver tried to bring up a bottle of gas to my apartment uh which mixed all my plans because it was a gas fired system and i wasn't allowed gas in the apartment so um So I went and built a very, very dangerous, high-voltage electric system, which they couldn't police me putting in. Um, I think I set fire to my bathroom maybe twice. (laughs) Um, That system's still going. We still use it up the brewery to do all our nano brews and R&D brews. Um, It was a really nice little system. So I carried on brewing through my three-year contract at IKEA. Uh, Met my partners in the middle of all of that, and we decided to set up Heart of Darkness. Um, It was sort of very early on in the craft stage here. Um, at that point, we had Rooster, we had Pasta Street, um, Fuzzy Logic. So, just a handful of smaller ones, with Pasta being the only one with a brewery and a, and a tap room. Um, so, we set up, we built uh, a tap room, and we did our own brewery. So, we actually came with money and self invested um, and started up a proper brew facility, um, opened up the bar in the center of D1. Um, and I think we were really the first ones to start really pushing and marketing and getting the the message out there for craft beer. And we put in 20 taps, um, which my brewers were freaked out by, but I was like, no, a part of our mission has to be to bring the different beers in the world to Vietnam. So I want 20 taps and we'll keep on brewing experimental stuff and basically introduce proper craft beer to, to the Vietnamese. Our whole ethos is to be very true to our roots, which is obviously the American craft beer scene. And I love, I love their push for innovation and always push the envelope and always try and do bigger, better things. Not necessarily cram more hops in, but but to innovate. Um, so so we've been doing that. We've done about six hundred beers in six years. Um, I think we've got over thirty international medals now, um, with over a third of those being gold. And now we're starting to win up pick up the regional awards and stuff as well. So I'm very proud of what the team have done. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact we've been able to keep up that clip of always having 20 of our own beers on tap. Um, So yeah, it's been a really, really fun journey and um, and we're getting the recognition for it now, which is awesome for the team because they've worked really hard for it.
1: We'll come back and talk a little bit about your beers. I'll just uh, get Chris to tell us his his story. But I was fascinated when I saw that IKEA was on your CV. Um, (laughs) I wasn't sure whether your your start in brewing was somebody turned up with a a bag of malts, some hops, some yeast and some water. And it was a case of just build it yourself.
2: Don't forget the Allen key. (laughs)
1: that was for the brewery (laughs) so Chris how about you because you're you're based in uh uh Bangkok or uh, Thailand
0: Thailand I'm at the uh at the house down around
1: I should say you're an expat uh an American
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I got CNN elections running out in the background. (laughs) See where we're going. Um,
2: Don't hold it against him though.
0: (laughs) Well, you gotta see where it's going. Um, So yeah, I I graduated from law school in 05, uh, went to Tokyo, was working there, consulting, legal, finance, sort of all in that uh, world. Uh, My neighbor at one of my houses was an importer of American craft beer. Um, So, when my ex got transferred to Chicago, um, that entity that he used as a buying agent was a New York entity. I'm a New York bar attorney, so I ended up sort of doing the contract negotiations on an ad hoc basis for his supply chain. Um, That then led to us creating an export, consolidated export company. Basically, many of the same beers that we were shipping to Japan, we started to ship elsewhere. Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, Sweden, Korea, um, you know, sort of down the board. Um, did that until 2000, from 2012, 11 to 2015. Then we created an importer in Korea, because uh, that was one of our biggest markets, but we didn't have enough distributors. So I went there, uh, set that importer up, uh, and then uh, decided to make a change. And I, I was the last employee hired by the original ownership of Ballast. Um, so worked for them until Constellation thoroughly destroyed it uh, and lost, uh, oh, $985 million <laughs> approximately. Um, uh, and then- Well, we've all got to have ambitions. Oh yeah, they're ambitious. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, that was a that was still the the largest flame out in craft, I would say, probably in beverage alcohol, honestly. Um, and then I joined HOD August of nineteen. Uh, just was starting to get things normalized, and then we went into three years of COVID. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But I, I see in your uh, CV, you've got Pirate Life on, on, on your CV uh, with uh, their, their partnership with uh, Constellation, I believe. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, we did the collaboration. Actually, that was before it was Constellation. That's when we were still in the independent. So that's when uh, Colby and myself uh, hung out with MC, Jack and the boys down in the original brewery down in South Adelaide. And then had a lovely time drinking wine in Adelaide Hills after that with MC. Uh, <laughs> what could
2: possibly uh, yeah. go wrong?
0: <laughs> right. Really it was one of my biggest markets for Ballast Point. I mean, if you recollect from like 2012 to 16 or 17, Woolworths bought a lot of Ballast. Mm. Uh, so I was down in market a lot, hanging out with various breweries as well as you know the, the distribution channels.
1: One of the things that fascinates me about uh, craft beer in Asia, and I'll, I'll get both of your perspectives on this, but maybe start with Chris. In Australia, we've got a huge country, um, but it's essentially homogeneous in terms of culture. Regulation's a little bit from state to state, but you know, fundamentally, it's it's very similar. In Asia, you've got, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a traditional beer culture um, to, to to begin with, even though there have been some uh, you know lager breweries a, a, across Asia, and we're seeing craft beer spring up from. American imports, and we're now starting to see breweries like Heart of Darkness, but it's also in a, in, in a region where there are very different, um, you've got language barriers, you've got culture differences, you've got vastly different legislation and uh, you know, those sorts of frameworks to, to, to operate in. De- describe to me the, uh, the, the Asian brewing, uh, you know, the craft brewing scene, um, if you can, Chris.
0: Well, I would agree that one of the things you touched on was regulatory differences. Uh, Mm. You know, I'm in Thailand where historically anything smaller than than Singha was illegal. Um, Mm. And customs differences between the countries, uh, how they tax the product is different, right? Is it like your type of methodology, rate A, B, B volume? Uh, How painful is it? Uh, Is it category tax? Uh, The markets are indeed different, right? Just like Spain is different than Latvia. Uh, Asia Mm. is, Southeast Asia is not homogenous. So you see different types of products do better in different countries, Uh, different ABVs, different styles. Uh, Most of the breweries within the region, I would say, are predominantly focused only on their country that they are sitting in. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're an exception to that. Uh, we're, we're focused obviously on Vietnam, but we're focused on, on being a premier brand within Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, and we get outside of Asia as well because we distribute within parts of Europe. Um, so I would say that that is the big difference uh, is that I think part of that is because our, our group of people within it is a more globally minded group of people, globally experienced group of people. Um, where many of the craft breweries within Asia historically were started by people who got to a country for some reason uh, and then were a home brewer uh, and sort of started that professional brewery but it was never like intentional for lack of better words Uh, Hmm. so I think that's the big difference is that we are we operate like a, a more a larger more visionary, holistic brewery versus a much more uh, segmented, you know, I live in Busan, I'm going to make beer for Busan. Uh, Nothing against Mm -hmm. Paul if you end up watching this because we like Paul at Gorilla. I don't know why, but that's why (laughs) Busan's stuck in my head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and John, how about you, when I read of wine being exported, you know, uh, there is, across Asia, there is, because of the, ingredients they've traditionally had the culinary experience they've traditionally had you know when it comes to things like wine i often read that the, the asian palate looks for different flavors coming from wine is, is that true of beer is do, does the asian market embrace for example hops that have been the mainstay of craft beer the same way that perhaps some of the uh, the, the the western um craft beer uh, countries have
2: yeah, I think so. You look at Vietnam as a great example. So Vietnam actually does have a really strong beer culture and has had since the French were here. Um, it's, I think, the third, second biggest consumer in Asia. It's not the biggest mm. now. It's definitely Heineken's biggest market out here.
1: I should actually say that uh, when, when I said that there's, it's not a traditional brewing community. Vietnam, I, I was reading, is one of the biggest markets for beer in in Asia. And uh, yeah. So it is a bit of a standout.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a part of our calculation when we started Heart of Darkness was, one, it's a big beer-consuming nation, so they're comfortable with beer, and two, the Vietnamese have this wonderful natural curiosity for everything Western, um, and wine has done well here because of the French influence, um, and whiskey does well here too. I think Spirits outsell beer here by quite a big, significant margin. Um So, And I always say that craft beer, to me, is far more akin to fine wines and whiskies than it is to commercial beers at the end of the day. Um, Because you are looking at the notes of this and hints of that. And um, a well-made beer is a very interesting and complex beast. Um, So, yeah, I mean, when we came onto the scene, everyone was sort of making beers for the Vietnamese. Uh, I thought that was a little bit offensive. Um, So we just went balls out and just did um, Kurtz's Insane IPA as our first launch beer, which was uh, 102 IBUs and uh, 7.1% ABV. Everyone thought we'd lost our minds. But my thinking was, we'll let the Vietnamese tell us what they like in craft beer. Um, And it very quickly became an incredibly popular seller. um, And we followed it up with some other very um, uncompromising American style craft beers that all went down really well. Uh, and then we basically followed the markets lead. After that, um, and like our bestseller uh, outside of our craft lager is uh, is our Dream Alone Pale Ale, uh, which is mm-hmm. super hoppy, but it's all late edition hopping. So it's all about that flavour and the intricate layers that you get from the different timing. It's a single hop, just using Mosaic, but the different timing intervals gives all these different intricate flavours. Um, and I and I genuinely believe it's so successful because because it's got all these fun fruity interesting flavors in it, not not just the bitterness. Uh, So the Vietnamese seem to be taking to it really well. I mean, our tap room now is packed most nights. Um, Took us a while to get there, but uh, the Vietnamese are definitely loving it. and, And we're seeing it across the region as well. I mean, Thailand's really kicking off for us. And the scene in Thailand right now is, my God. I mean, watching the young Thais embrace craft. Yeah, I just sit stunned in the corner of these bars with like 300 seat venues with all young 20 something year old Thais drinking craft beer and having a great time. Um, same thing's happening here in Vietnam now.
1: And, and you've kind of answered my question because I'd, it was interesting being at Sea Brew and then also seeing the um, a lot of the brewers over you know, across Asia, expats who for a variety of reasons have found themselves in Southeast Asia. but. Uh, And and I I did wonder, are they brewing for other expats or is there uh, like very much a, you know, a a cultural appreciation? Chris, you're uh, shaking your head there. Um, Is it sort of, uh, you know, Asians embracing the flavors of craft beer?
0: Right, because I mean, at the beginning of markets, like when craft is new to a market, and this is not just Southeast Asia, but North Asia as well, the expats were actually pretty important. Right, because they hmm. they were the ones that really craved it. they were the ones that had the, the, the product knowledge and the brand knowledge so to speak um, But then as the market matured, it got out of the expat community. So at the end of the day you know there's only a few at what, a percent percent and a half two percent expats. Um, now the and, and speaking of like Thailand specifically, the five years ago the focus of craft was lower suvi. Which was heavy on expats, also Silom as well. So it's you know, basically mm-hmm. like 23 to Nana and Silom. Now the majority of the demand in Bangkok is in what you would call the inner suburbs. Uh, it's Lat Phrao, it's Pink Lao, it's Rama Four. Yes, there's still stuff that's expat facing in in the lower part of, of Sukhumvit, but the consumption is now spread out to the you know the upper middle class Thai neighborhoods.
1: Okay. John, is that the, the, the case in Vietnam as well? Very much so, yeah. I mean, um, you, you need the expats in the early phase. It's sort of
2: validation of the model, right? Um, but we, we push all our marketing towards the Vietnamese now. I mean, our whole push is to localize everything. Um, and yeah, I'd say, I mean, at the moment, because it's tourist season, so it's a little bit out of whack. But um, right now, we're probably 70% Vietnamese and 30% expat. Um, we were as high as about 90% Vietnamese, um, prior to the tourists coming in. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely getting out there and working. Um, but I think, you you know, as Chris said, these are still, I mean, what the Vietnam scene's only probably seven, eight years old in total. Um, and it takes a long time, a lot of exposure to craft beer, to get the palate that you would need if you even had the desire to go off and make beer. Right. So. You know, for the locals to, to get on this bandwagon, and I mean, I'm super proud that our Lee Brewer is local and he's fantastic, um, but can he create a recipe? No, because he doesn't have that experience yet uh, or that creativity side to it. Um, so it'll take a while to, to see sort of locals come up uh, with the ability to write recipes and with that breadth of drinking experience, basically, drinking around all the different styles and the different brands to understand, because the, 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 it's... Quite a complex beast at the end of the day. But uh, I'm looking forward to the day when that starts to happen here. Um, and it will. It definitely will because the creativity is here. Uh, it's just the time and saddle needed. So, I'm a, you know, my accountants will get upset at me because we've got so many expats on stuff. But my response to that is, you know, if you can find me a Vietnamese that has that depth of knowledge right now that we need to kickstart this business and get it moving fast, I'll hire them in a heartbeat. I'd much rather have an all-Vietnamese team. But the reality is we still need to go out there and find experienced expats to do the roles. in um, like even marketing, for instance, I mean, we've got a fantastic lady, Grace, who does our marketing. She's British, um, but she has a lot of craft experience. So she knows how to market a craft brand. She knows, understands beer, understands, you know, she can sit in complex conversations with our brewers and she knows what's going on, which I think really helps give us an edge when it comes to the marketing as well.
1: Quite often in the early days of the Australian craft beer movement, you know, it it really kicked off in the US in 1980 with Sierra Nevada, which was the beer that excited you, John. And, uh, um, you know, Little Creatures here was one of the breweries that um, really inspired, had that same influence. It was very much um, modelled on the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale in in a lot of ways. But when it kicked off, um, you know, a lot. the commentary was Australia is 10 years behind the States in terms of its craft beer with social media and with the you know, rapid innovations that take place in craft beer you know I, I like to think that Australia is probably you know six months behind what's going on in the US in a lot of ways and that's mainly just a seasonal thing in the same way that you know uh, fashions that are appropriate to the northern winter come down for the southern winter six months later because we can follow quite quickly what, what is the thinking around, uh, you know, uh, either John or Chris, um, what is the thinking around where Asia is in terms of how far, you know, behind the, 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 the key craft beer trends driven by America to do you think Asia is? And is, is there a single Asian market that you can describe or is it everyone's a little bit different?
0: I would say it's a little behind in the sense the consumers don't have the experience yet, right? Like that the Aussie consumers do because they do have... You know, the first time I showed up in the Oz was Good Beer Week Melbourne and Gabs 2012, right? So uh, that was still pretty early in the game. Now, obviously, the the social media factor does make information move, but that that consumer is ready for something uh, quicker because of that experience. Um, the older the market is, the the more quick it is to embrace things or want new things. So Thailand is a much more is a market that's much more focused on. On uh, um, developmental or new styles of products, partly because it gets air freighted in, right, uh, or other or ties get exposed to it in other places. So it, it isn't one answer fits all, uh, but it it's definitely you know the time has compressed, right? the The time to experience has compressed as a result of technology, although it did slow because travel was gone right? I mean, when you couldn't travel, you weren't trying things. And when bars were closed because the government closed them, that made it even harder. Um, so it, it has been a very you know, uh, messy last couple of years. But I mean, it, it's definitely, it is behind per se, uh, but it's not, you know, it's going to take far less time for Asia to quote unquote, catch up than it did for Australia, just because things went quicker now.
1: Uh, just picking up from that, I was really struck when I was at Seabrew, the exuberance, I would describe it, you know, the, 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 the exuberance of the industry, which, which you you see in a young industry. And, you know, Chris uh, would have seen that in 2012 with the early days of Good Beer Week, you know, hey, look, we're coming together. There's this industry. We all have the same passion. It's wonderful. It's innovative. Um, isn't this exciting? And there was very much that um, at, at, at Seabrew. Is that your experience that there's that, that, that real excitement? Um, for craft beer across Asia? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot
2: of really cool characters on the scene. Um, I mean, I love being part of the Vietnamese scene, but um, Sea Brews, sorry, Asia Brew now, as it's going to be called. Asia Brew,
1: Brew Asia, yep. Yeah. Brew Asia. Brew Asia, yeah.
2: Sorry, sorry, Charlie. Um, that <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> that to me, is a highlight of the year. Um, I've been gutted that we haven't been able to do it for the last three years. Um, so uh, what you saw was a bunch of old friends that hadn't really seen each other in three years coming together for the first time. Yeah, I mean, walking through the trade fair and just like hugs flying around everywhere as you see people that you haven't seen in ages. And I mean, the social aspect of it for me is, is the highlight of, of Um just, just trading ideas and hearing experiences and trading war stories. And it's, it's so much fun, but it's also so informative, and it helps create these bonds across the region which you know, stay alive throughout the rest of the year. I mean, we're all in constant contact with each other. Um, and like Chris and I are forever flying around the region now that we can. Um, and that's a big part of what we like to do with Heart of Darkness is to make sure that we are present in country and in our markets and that we're around and that we can meet people and interact with people. And we get to know the Brewers really well through doing that. And it, and it is a really cool, good scene. It's a lot of good people around doing a lot of good work uh, and having fun and a lot of passion involved in it.
1: It's funny, we mentioned wine a few times during this, um, drinking wine. And uh, you've also talked about the complexity of beer, as John is uh, complex as wine and spirits. Um, and I've long grappled with where beer fits in, because on one hand, we want to experience these beers that we've tried around the you world, know, that we've heard about around the world, you know, in our armchairs at home. But beer seems to have a different... Um, it, it is a much different traveller than, than, than wine or spirits. And, and conversely, when I travel, it's almost a little disappointing when you go to Vietnam or London um, or another state of Australia and have exactly the same beer offer that you would get in, influenced by the United States. Yep. Do we see highly regionized styles in Asia? Will we, or Will we see, do you think um you know beers that are very much uh, idiosyncratic to the place that they're made oh interesting question
2: i think within to a degree yes but um i mean i think craft beer i mean like here Pasteur street do a lot of that they do um, local ingredients in most of their beers Um we made an active decision not to do that as a thing i mean we do it every now and then if something really appeals to us we'll do it so to that extent yeah but I, for me, that's just an extension of craft. I mean, it, it, it's just what we do, right? We play with beer, we play with ingredients, and we mess around with it. So if it's localized, okay, but I'm I, I assuming to an extent, I don't think it really is a thing uh, or should be seen as a be-all and end-all in, in craft beer for the region. I mean, for me, I actually had a really interesting tasting a couple of years back with um, this old guard, communist leader of uh, Petrolimax. Uh, actually, lovely, lovely guy. and. I was doing a tasting with him and a bunch of his friends. So these are seriously wealthy, sort of connected guys in the government. And it was it was a casual kick kickback, just had beers with him. And this guy said to me halfway through the tasting, I went, John, you know, you can't call this beer. I'm like, Well, we don't call it beer, we call it craft beer. He's like, No, 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 it's not beer. It's so much better than beer. It's so different than beer. It's so much flavor, it's so much more interesting. And he was saying it's more like wine and whiskey. And I, I fully agree with him actually. It's um and we've been having this conversation within HOD recently as well. Are we craft beer? Are we a premium beer? Are we a beer? What are we? And I, I, I genuinely believe that craft beer and macro beer are night and day. They're not the same thing. I mean, craft beer is beer that's worth getting fat for, macro beer, not so much. Um, and you know, you blindfold yourself and you try all these different macro beers. I defy you to be able to tell the difference between any of them. Whereas with craft beer, you're going to get flavor explosions you know, and like all sorts of different fun stuff going off in it. Uh, I mean, it's beer that's brewed with passion and with love. And it, it's brewed by people that want to, share, want to share something they have inside them with other people, right? Share their vision in their head of what that beer is going to taste like and share it with people. Uh, macro beer is just for getting drunk, in my opinion. Craft beer, I mean, we very rarely deal with drunk incidents at this bar. Uh, i think your your average craft beer consumer is not doing it just to get drunk they're doing it for the quality of the experience and for the for me it's about quality of time with friends uh, and creating memories and the beer is an important part of that memory it's part of that journey um i think you always want to try and create that emotive connection with craft beer and that's not the same thing that you get with heineken and tiger and all that i mean they've got their place and i'll never put them down um but it, it serves a different purpose i think
0: yeah, I mean, I say you would get some localization based upon the the way to which people drink. Like, is it with food? Is it not with food? What's the food like? What's the culinary culture? I mean, as a Japan person, thankfully back next week for the first time in a long time, uh, <laughs> Japanese craft beer is like Japanese cuisine. It's very refined, but it's not terribly aggressive. Um, and I, I think you, you get that. Uh, to different degrees in different cultures. Uh, And then also, this is true of of you guys in Oz, because of your tax structure, you get a lot of beer between 4.5 and 5.5% alcohol. Uh, If you eliminate that regulatory Mm. confine, like Vietnam has, or Japan has, or the US has, you get beer of much greater ABV diversity, and that adds to product flavor diversity. Um, Mm. But that's not a function of of geography or demography, it's basically legislative. (laughs)
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's where legislation and the, the regulatory environment has a, a, a is a huge lever that, that that shapes local industries. With so much focus on sustainability and carbon miles, I guess Asia is not a hop growing region, and it's probably not a barley growing region either. But it's a, sort of traditionally been a, a rice growing region. Will we see? Do, do you think we'll see more beers made using um, you know rice, for example, as a, a rather than importing uh, malts?
2: Um, I mean, I don't really. I don't see that happening. I mean, the only real reason to do that would be a cost cutting exercise, uh, which to me is mm-hmm. defeats the object anyway, right? Um, and you get so much more flavour and colour and body and everything else out of uh, out of a malt uh, than you would out of rice. And although saying that, we just did use rice in um, Break the Spell, a cold IPA that we did, um, but that was more about keeping the body. A little bit lighter. Um, it was interesting, actually. It was a really nice beer, and it did have a little bit of umami in it, which I'm guessing was probably due to the rice.
1: We have seen, again, talking about that time frame and, and you know where regions are within the um, you know evolution of, of the industry. We've seen in Australia a, a lot of breweries that launched on the excitement of hops, and you know we had the. Um, IBU races of the uh, you know two thousands and you know then then we had the you know I'm hazier than you are or I'm sort of a um, as as some of those businesses have realised that as a unit cost game and a you know that they, they need to get volume we have increasingly seen um, brewers looking at fizzy yellow lagers um, and and in embracing those realising that that's still where a lot of the market is or trying to find more sessionable um, beers that aren't as aggressive and, and and challenging. Do you think that's a natural part of the business cycle, and and Asia will find that once that excitement of the new wears off, or it, you know, what, what what's your thought about that part? You know that business cycle.
0: Well, for one, I mean, craft is generally is a pull business, right? We all lack mm. a significant marketing budget to push things. Mm. But in the beginning of the trade, the beginning of the craft experience, you need something really, really different for people to be like, well, why am I paying three or four times the price of my normal X? Uh, and if it tastes a lot different, it looks a lot different. People are able to justify that fact, right? If you're to say, oh, here's a, a nicer version of a lager that tastes, you know, 85% like your normal lager, but costs twice as much. Good luck selling that (laughs) Uh, with an inexperienced (laughs) consumer base. Um, So Mm. the the natural cycle that I've seen in every market is it starts with big beers, usually on the IPA side, but can also be big and dark, depending upon the market, some like um, that big dark side. Um, Then it'll moderate towards what average people want to drink on an average day, which is going to be more sessionable, uh, lagers, broader market appeal and then it'll sort of you know evolve into just like what's the hot food ingredient it'll evolve uh, or what's the hot grape over the course of time and maybe it'll be you know be the wit beer for a while it'll go into the xpa and then sours get hot but at the end of the day the volume is going to still always be lager for every market in the world i would say um and then in the ale space it's going to be you know, the pale ale lighter IPA is always going to be bigger than the double IPA or the, you know, the, the extreme beers.
2: It's giving people choice at the end of the day. I mean, you know, our lager's is our best-selling beer. I mean, we move probably about 50% of it, more of it than we do of Dream Alone, which is uh, our, best, our best-selling our best craft craft beer. Um, we do that as a sub-brand of beer, BIA. So we've got two, two sub-brand lagers that we do, one which is mango, passion, fruit infused, and one which is just a straight-up citro lager. Um, but it's still, we still do late addition hopping on it. We still use craft techniques on it. So it's not your average lager. but it's definitely something that people can associate with and connect to. Um, it acts as a nice bridge over into craft. Um, and I think you need to walk people up that ladder as well. I mean, so, I mean, I agree with what Chris has said, but I also think that there's a place to now convert people with a lager. like, yeah, it's more expensive, a little bit more expensive. Um, not crazy craft beer, more expensive, but it's a, a first step into like, hey, look, you can have a lager that's really lush and flavorful, and you know, not just crisp and bitter. Um, and the, I mean, our tropical beer does really well. The mango, passion fruit flavors in it work really well. So you've still got that crisp, light, refreshing beer, but you've got a little bit of a fun twist to it. Um, and then, and then, the next bestseller for us is Pale Ale, which, like Chris said, nice, easy drinking session beer. Five point seven is a session beer for me. Um, yeah, and and it and it sells really well, and it's not you know it is aggressively hopped, but you know we we you know you, you were mentioning and I love the whole New England conversation because it always makes me laugh. But we basically took New England hopping techniques and applied it to a pale ale, so we came out with this beautiful, juicy, fruity, fun pale ale, which doesn't have a lot of bitterness to it, but it's super playful, um, and has we put no bittering hops in it at all. So now you've got a really expensive beer but it's quite unique and very different um, which really is what we should be here doing right.
1: To change the subject a little bit and talk about Heart of Darkness uh, and, and the name we saw in New Zealand uh, it was seven or eight years ago. Um, the Garage Project had uh, Death From Above, which was uh, a, a social media comment. Like, again, it was, i bit be the name of for, for, yeah, well, and it was for very good reasons and things like that. And it yeah. wasn't, but, you know, there was some sensitivities raised about that in a, you know, in, in, yeah. in a European country.
2: I think it was more the label though, right? I mean, that was, it was ooh, the
1: label.
2: definitely out there to create a bit of uh, media stuff.
1: Was well, well, it just the label? You know, and, and uh, I, I guess has there been any observational commentary around um, you know expats coming in and naming a brewery Heart of Darkness in you know, yeah. what what I, I, I guess there would be potentially some sensitivities around it. Have, have you had any uh, conversation around that?
2: Yeah, but not a lot actually. I mean, I reckon probably only about ten percent of the customers get the reference anyway, um, and I think I've only had we've had one one star review. Calling us, um, what they call us, imperialistic bastards or something. I don't know. Um, but actually, <laughs> but when, which is quite funny because when you read the book, uh, it's actually about Prince Leopold of Belgium, right? Um, and it is basically so he's Kurtz, and um, and it, it, it is a look at imperialism. And, it, and it's a nasty look at it, and it, it's putting it down. It's saying, this is bad. You can't treat humans like this. This is this is not the right way to go. And Apocalypse Now as well. I mean, people look at it as a, war about, a film about the Vietnam War. It's not. It's an anti-war movie. And that's the genius of Apocalypse Now. And it was filmed while the war was still going on. So Coppola really made a ballsy move with that movie. So people that think that The Heart of Darkness is an imperialistic name are completely missing the point. Um, and and that's not who we are. <laughs> as a brewery either.
1: Although nuance and uh, the point in some of these debates don't necessarily uh, <laughs> have, have 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 a great deal of sway.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, how many people have read the book when they want to make those comments? Either. I mean, it's not yeah. necessarily an easy book to read, right? So, um, but it, I mean, so the brewery is named after named after Harder Dartner Says it's my favourite book. Um, Apocalypse Now is my favourite movie. Uh, and has had quite a deep, long-lasting effect on my life since I first saw it when I was thirteen years old. Um, the book I studied at university, and it just blew my mind. Uh, it mm. took the movie to a whole other level for me. And so, when we were looking for, um, we were looking for a name for the brewery, and we wanted, we wanted something that was dark and edgy, something that would stick in people's mind, like a punch in the gut. or like who the hell calls a brewery that? Um, and so, we were toyed with Apocalypse Now, but there was a, it's now closed. But there was a Somewhat shady nightclub, not too far from our bar, called Apocalypse Now, which was run by the mafia and the government. I'm not sure if you can separate the two, but um, but so we decided that probably wouldn't be a good idea to call it that. Um, So right, right, let's go down another layer, Heart of Darkness. Um, So that was our loose link back to Saigon. That's what the other part that we wanted to have a link to Saigon, because Heart of uh, Apocalypse Now starts with Saigon. Shit's still only a Saigon, Um, and of course the movie kicks off in Saigon. So it's worked, but it's done great. I mean, like all the, all the names of the beers come from the book. So it has to be two words in the book together, um, to create a beer. So when you see the IPA, you know, we've run out of cool names. Um, and then, um, all the labels for the beers, uh, relate to the passage that the name comes from. Um, and then if you look at the labels, there's lots of hidden devices in it. Um, so we want the brand to be like eye candy on a on a visual level but then if you really get into the brand you can sort of peel back the layers of the onion and then of course at the center of it all is uh is, is my to the world as um out of darkness it's about a trader that goes crazy in the middle of the jungle and i've been a trader in asia for the most part of my life so um so there's many links there but it's personal at the end as well
1: how about you, Chris? In, in a business development sense, if if you're looking at exporting beyond um, Asia, do you think you know that that nuance and the, the the thought behind it may get lost?
0: Well, I mean, I would say John's ten percent is probably about ninety nine percent too high. I mean, <laughs> most people aren't terribly okay. well educated on current events, much less books <laughs> from the eighteen <1890s>. uh, nineties. <laughs> So, I would say, I mean, I think the average consumer isn't terribly deep anyways. It's more of a, is this cool? Does it look cool? Is it visually interesting? Can they relate to the story of the people that make the beer? Is the liquid good? Some consumers, I think, will delve down, but I, I think it's, it, it's the minority of them. It, it's mostly about, can they are, are you connectable today? Right, And what yeah. about your brand connects to you a consumer and makes you feel that you want to be part of that because there's a ton of choice import domestic mm. rtds spirits wine not drinking um yeah there's a ton of choice out there <laughs> i know i know people do not drink john uh or they drink any uh but yeah so i i don't think i mean i think having a true story helps you know having worked for other breweries and when you have re- founders that do exist and you have a story about why the brewery is called what the brewery is called, is very important. When the, when the brand is just created in a boardroom, that's very hard to connect to consumers. You need people to connect.
1: Absolutely. Now, I, I, I guess the last question, where next for Heart of Darkness?
2: Oh, we really want to come to us. Really, really want to come, that's top of my list. Um, but um, sadly, and Chris had it all sorted as well in 2019. <laughs> and then COVID screwed that up. And then freight rates screwed in, that in up. In the before and times,
1: but we are in a post-apocalyptic yeah. world. So hopefully we'll, uh, we we'll get to see you down about, here.
2: Now we've got exchange rates to battle. So um, yeah, but we're, we're definitely on that one. Um, and then Chris really wants to get Japan up and running. So do I actually. Um, can't wait for business trips back to Japan again. Um, Korea. Um, and then we're working on on europe um and of course i mean the us when we can get fx stuff sorted again would definitely be another target i mean we just want to get it out there and share it you know and have some fun at the end of the day but this sorry i've just dumped all over your turf there chris
0: (laughs) no i mean i'd say that that's all right but in in the short term it's really going deep in our own markets because there are a lot of things that aren't terribly great in the world at the moment that are well, yeah. out of all of our controls, macroeconomic, geopolitical, of that nature. So we're really focusing on on really taking our position to the next level within the Southeast Asian area, uh, and then being able to pounce when the world does get better um, in other areas of the world by maintaining those relationships, as well as getting product into places for events and festivals and all that stuff, you know, and, and things like this to make sure that our our name is. Just getting
1: out there. Just out of interest, what, what, what size is the brewery? Like, What what sort of is your annual production volumes, John? Um, we're just about to expand it to 1.2 million litres. Okay. Still a little bit uh, obviously big enough to start moving some beer around the region. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Terrific. Well, hopefully we will see you. Do, do you have any beer down here yet? Like even uh, small-scale uh, supplies, Chris?
0: Uh, we did for uh, Pints of Origin last year. Or, sorry, this year, mm-hmm. this year, yeah. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, there's again, there's conversations going. Worst case scenario, if the Aussie dollar doesn't improve, which is really the biggest problem, um, then we'll probably be looking at something similar for Good Beer Week Melbourne uh, in May, uh, or perhaps mm-hmm. a collaboration, or perhaps both. Uh, you know, At the end of the day, it is a business, so the math has to work
1: to hear uh, expressions like it's a business I, I think you're already well ahead of where australia was uh, 15 years ago in the early days of craft because the, the focus was always on the craft not on the craft beer business so uh, that, that's interesting to hear well chris roberts and uh, john pemberton thank you so much for joining us for this uh beers a conversation episode and talking about all things heart of darkness and uh, beer across asia is there i, I guess any last uh, observations or comments that you'd uh, love australian uh, beer drinkers and brewers to hear
2: keep your eyes open guys we'll be down there soon i'm
1: really looking forward to it terrific well hopefully we'll get to host you both uh, and uh, get to have a beer with you uh down this part of the world uh before too much longer thank you both that would be That'll awesome be very thank much. you matt much appreciated and that was john pemberton and chris roberts as for the rest you know the drill if you value what we do you'll find links in the show notes to learn how you can help us keep doing what we're doing